Good morning, Disciples Church. I'm Robert, and today's reading comes from 1 John 2, 28 uh, through 3, 10. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thank Thanks be to God. Thank you, Robert. Appreciate that very much. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Disciples Church. We are so very glad, as always, that you have joined us in worship today. My name is Dave Hahn, and I am one of the pastors here at Disciples Church, and it is my privilege, as always, to open God's word with and for you. So you may or may not know that my family and I have a 11-year-old Boston Terrier named Grievous after the Star Wars character. He is growing increasingly blind and deaf as he ages, but there is one aspect of Grievous that has not changed in his 11 years. He has been, and he continues to be, dumb and stubborn. We love him, but it is true. He is dumb and he is stubborn. It's not entirely his fault, actually. Dog trainers that I have met when I've talked with them about Grievous have told me that his breed in particular is nearly untrainable, so that we should be happy with whatever we got. So like most dog owners, without knowing that, we hoped that Grievous would learn to follow simple commands like sit and shake and stay. And he does really well, actually, with the first two, but he is not great. He's almost horrible at staying. And as I've come to think about this, I've come to the conclusion that if he doesn't sit or if he doesn't shake, it's not that big of a deal. In some way, those are kind of tricks. But when he chooses not to stay because of something that interests him more or because of his tendency to chase the bouncing tennis ball or the bounding squirrel, he puts himself in danger and creates messes that do not need to be made. And as I've thought even more about it, I've come to realize how much I can be like my dumb dog. 
refusing to stay where God, my master, wants me so that I can chase after things that are not necessarily good for me and at the same time avoid the things that are. Within our passage today, there were three occurrences of the word abide. We even sang and spoke those words earlier in the service. And in the entire letter of 1 John, we find that word used 24 times. In John's gospel, so this is his first letter, and in his gospel, it is used another 40 times. Altogether, the Bible uses the word abide 118 times, and 68 of those occurrences appear in John's writings. Abide is a word that we don't use a lot in modern English, but John used it often, as did other biblical authors, so I think that it is vital that we understand what the Bible means when it uses it. To abide means simply to stay or to remain. Jesus, most famously in John 15, spoke of our need to abide in him as a branch does unto a vine. Do you remember? And we all know what becomes of a branch that is cut off from the vine from which it grows. Simply put, it withers and it dies because its very life source has been severed. But, but, the branch that remains connected to the vine finds the life of the vine flowing into it and thereby bearing the fruit that comes from the life of the vine. It works that way in nature, as we all know, and Jesus let us know that it works that way with the Spirit too. Jesus primarily used the idea of abiding in connection to him personally, he being the vine, you and I being the branches. And then by extension, he commanded us to abide in his word and in his love. Abide in me, abide in my love, and abide in my word. And I think the reason that scripture uses the word abide as often as it does, 118 times, is because you and I tend to abandon rather than abide. We tend to stray rather than to stick. We run rather than remain. And just as a branch withers and dies when cut off from the life of the vine, so we wither and die, spiritually speaking, when we are cut off from the life, the love, and the word of the true vine, who is Christ. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus said. And John wrote this letter, 1 John, to believers that struggled with whether to abandon or abide in Jesus and what it looked like to do one versus the other. Look again at verses 28 and 29 as Robert read it for us. 28, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 
In these first two verses of today's passage, John makes a logical and causal argument saying, Christians abide in Christ because they have been born of Christ so that they can have confidence in Christ. Would you follow that logic? And friends, this is all about the identity of a Christian and then the outworkings of that identity. So the churches of Asia Minor that John wrote to were being blown about by the winds of false doctrine as young believers. The false doctrines that had been laid before them by false teachers called Gnostics. We've talked about them every week. And as such, these young believers were losing confidence in their salvation and were considering abandoning the one whom they had first received by faith because they were being deceived regarding who it was that made them spiritually alive and in whom eternal life and love are found. Remember last week when John said in chapter 2, verses 26 and 27, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you. That was what was happening in that church and what John wanted to remind them of. John was charging these young believers to stay the course that Christ had put them on, to stick with him in whom they had been spiritually reborn so they would not be led astray and instead live confidently in Christ. That is the what and the why of the word abide for those who have been born from above, for them and for you and for me. John was encouraging them to remember what they had been taught and had come to believe from the beginning, but above all of that, to remember who they were in Christ and to remain in him. Because John understood that it is a person's identity, real or perceived, that determines their behavior. For the Christian, Knowing our identity is in Christ is what leads to confidence in our salvation. One of the major themes of this letter, if not the major theme, is that as Christians, we can know that we know God. We can know that we know God. And John was seeking to provide that assurance and confidence in our right standing and knowledge of Christ, not only in the here and now, but also on the day where we see him face to face. Jesus is coming again, my friends. And according to verse 28, people are going to react to his coming in one of two ways, in confidence or by shrinking back in shame in confidence, or by shrinking back in shame. And so my question to you today is, are you confident about the day of his return? And if so, where does that confidence or lack thereof come from? My friends, a a Christian's confidence cannot come 
from their perceived performance. A Christian's confidence cannot come from their perceived performance, or they will have no confidence at all. They would have no reason to. In the same way, our core identity cannot be rooted in ourselves or in anyone or anything that this world offers. If our confidence and if our core identity is not found in who God is, in what God has done on our behalf, in what God says is true of us, or in what God declares to be eternal and unchanging, our confidence in our identity is built on sinking sand. And we should expect it to cave and crumble when the storms come. Because at the end of the day, nothing outside of Christ himself can satisfy or sustain us. Nothing outside of Christ himself. Every relationship, my friends, that you and I have, and everything that we love to do, and everything that we find hope and security in on this earth can be changed or taken from us in an instant, leaving us lost and broken. Do you realize that? Whoever and whatever it is that you are putting confidence in and building your identity around that is of this world can be lost or taken from you. So we must ask ourselves, in what or in whom can we find confidence for this life and the life to come? In what or in whom can we find an eternal identity and our true purpose for living? These are critical questions for us to consider. And fortunately, John gives us our answer to both questions in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3, which read, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Do you know, my friends, that the only identity that cannot and does not change, the only identity that can satisfy and sustain us is that of being a child of God. That's it. According to Tim Keller, Our identity as children of God is the only identity given to mankind that is received and not achieved. It is the only identity that is received and not achieved. And when we receive by grace invitation into the family of God, recognizing that we did not achieve it, we can be utterly confident that we will not and cannot lose it. If we didn't achieve it, how in the world are we going to lose it? And we can also be confident that we will be welcomed with open arms by our Heavenly Father, not only on that final day, but every day in the here and now. Listen to verse 1 again. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. How does he describe that love? 
that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. Now. Disciple Church, I, I think that the privilege of being a child of God can be lost on us, or that we just don't understand it. Partially because we really don't understand the indescribable benefits of such standing and the extraordinary access to God that our sonship provides, but it is also lost on us because we falsely believe that we are all children of God. But my friends, that is simply not so. That is not so. Regarding approaching God as our Father, as Jonathan mentioned two weeks ago, as his children, you and I are loved and welcomed in a way that we struggle to comprehend. Jonathan had used the example of a child waking his father, who was the king, for a drink of water in the middle of the night. Do you remember? I mean, that is an incredible picture but there is another image that I always think of when it comes to the same idea. In the early 1960s, you can actually Google this. In the early 1960s, a Look magazine photographer during the Kennedy administration captured a moment where a young John F. Kennedy Jr. was seen playing underneath the Resolute desk in the Oval Office, the President's desk in the Oval Office, and he was playing right beneath the feet of his father, the President of the United States, the most powerful man in the world. Who but a beloved child plays at the feet of his father, though he is President? Who but a child taps his father's face in the middle of the night for a cool drink, though he is the king? And what good father, no matter his position, wouldn't welcome such things? So my friends, we have to ask, do we approach our heavenly father with such confidence, knowing that we will be lovingly embraced and attended to because we are his beloved? My friends, we can and we should do so as children of not the president, not the king, but the king of kings. God himself. But, as I mentioned just a minute ago, not everyone born into this world can claim sonship. In John's gospel, among other places, we are told that sonship is an act of God. It is an act of God. John 1, so this is the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 11 through 13 reads, He, that is Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, listen, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Friends, we are all made in the image of God. But we are not all children of God. And I think it's the distinction between those two things that confuses us. All of mankind is made in the image of God. But not all of mankind can, can be called the child of God. 
Rather, because sin entered the world and has lived in us from the beginning, we are born enemies of God. Enemies who, according to verse 12 of John 1 that I just read, did not receive him, but rejected him, though he came to us in love. But by God's grace, by God's grace, having been born again through the faith that he imparted to us, we were given the right to become children of God and no longer be counted as enemies. As one commentator said it, the Apostle John here revels in the fact that God would not only forgive sinners such as us, but that he would go so far as to make us his children. False teaching often promises some new insight or privilege, but John says the privilege of being God's child trumps anything else false teachers have to offer. What could be better What could be better than to be called a child of God? My friends, sonship is always a gift and a privilege. Sonship is always something that children cannot and do not earn. What did we do to earn sonship and daughtership in our families? And just as it is with human parents, sons and daughters of God are not made through performance. Rather, children of God are born anew. They are born of the Spirit. Children of God, my friends, must be born again. To be born both physically alive and to be made spiritually alive by the grace of God. And as we have often said here at Disciples Church, the Bible doesn't know of a Christian who is not born born again. The Bible doesn't even know of that kind of Christian. To be born again is not to be a certain brand or kind of Christian, but to be a Christian at all. And only in being born again can a righteous life be lived. Only in being born again can a righteous life be lived? That's what these verses are saying. Do you realize that every other religion says that to be welcomed into the family of God, you must do right? Think about it. Every other religion says that to be welcomed into the family of God, you must do right. Christianity alone says that doing right is the result of being supernaturally born into the family of God. All religions are not the same. All religions don't lead to the same place. That's a ridiculous idea. For this reason alone, though there are countless others. So to the one who would say in response, well, are you saying good people are not children of God? Possibly. It depends what you mean by good. What do you mean by good? My friends, to to understand, to truly understand goodness and righteousness, we must first acknowledge that there is only one who is good, that there is only one who is righteous. 
And where mankind, where you and I get into trouble, is by falsely believing that we are capable of goodness and righteousness because it is we who determine what goodness and righteousness are. But as we all know, if we're honest with ourselves, our standards are totally subjective and they are ever changing. I mean, what much of humanity considered evil just a few years ago, do we not now call good? It is happening faster and faster. And if there is no author or standard of good and evil outside of ourselves, if there is no objective truth, who's to say otherwise? Who's to say what's good and what's evil? Do you see the problem with that way of thinking? And that's not even the biggest problem. (laughs) The biggest problem, the biggest problem is that the Bible says that all of our best deeds, the best stuff that we do in the flesh are filthy rags in the sight of God. So, listen. No one who has not been born again in Christ can ever be declared righteous. Did you hear that? No one who has not been born again in Christ can ever be declared righteous, no matter how good someone believes their life to be. And conversely, no one who has been born again can ever be called unrighteous, no matter how wicked someone believes their life to be. Because, all of this is true, because you and I have no righteousness or goodness of our own. The only righteousness and the only goodness that we have is from God in Christ. That is how radical the grace of God is, my friends. Righteousness, as God gives it, first manifests itself by revealing our inability to be righteous or to live righteously. Saying unto God, Lord, I can't save me. I can't change me. You're going to have to do it. That's where righteousness begins. And then God's righteousness does in us what we could never do for ourselves. And he makes us what we could never be on our own. That's what John is talking about. The gospel itself gives transformation that pushes against our natural personalities and our natural temperaments causing our affections and our desires and words and behaviors to increasingly reflect Christ. Not that we are without fault, not that we are without flaw, but we are being gradually and progressively made into the likeness of Jesus. Disciples Church We worship a God who has made a long-standing habit of declaring unrighteous people righteous. That's all he has ever done. 
People, by the way, that you and I would likely reject as Sunday morning greeters. We go, they can't do that. You know what their life was like? People, by the way, that if you knew, you'd likely want to not want to sit next to. These are the people that God has declared righteous. I mean, look at the life of King David or the Apostle Matthew or Saul who became Paul. These are adulterous, lying, thieving, murderous men that God in his grace chose to call righteous because of the faith that he gave them just as he did with you and with me. So, righteousness cannot be about works, and it cannot be about performance. Rather, it has to be an act of God that leads to gospel transformation. So my friends, blessed is the one who through Christ can call God their father, who by faith identify as righteous sons and daughters and co-heirs with Christ, our brother, It is an extraordinary gift and privilege that God has given. But, but, for those who yet refuse and reject God in Christ, they remain enemies of God. They remain spiritually dead to the one who came to grant them life. They remain unrighteous. And sadly, whether they are aware of it or not, they serve a different father altogether. So let's finish up with verses four through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So in verses 4 through 10 here, John lays before us two specific groups of people. The children of God who practice righteousness because they are righteous, and the children of the devil who make a practice of sinning because they are unrighteous and lawless. My friends, it is really a stark and a frightening concept to grab hold of. That every man, woman, and child is either a son or a daughter of God, or they are a son or a daughter of the devil. I have to tell you that because that's what the word of God tells us. And there is no neutral ground There is no neutral ground. You are one or the other. And John goes on to say that our sonship 
is made evident in what we say and do. Not that our behavior makes us children, but that our behavior will reflect who our Father is. As one commentator said it, when someone is born of someone else, there is almost always a family resemblance. You say, look, she has her mother's eyes, or he has his father's nose. Well, the children of God have a family resemblance to their father in heaven. He is righteous, so those who are born of him also practice righteousness. God has no children destitute of his image or who resemble him not. So as we move on now having read these things, let me address a proverbial elephant that may be wandering around the room of your mind. Outside of everything else scripture says, including John just a few verses earlier than today's passage, outside of an understanding of the gospel that comes by grace and through faith, it is possible to believe that what John is demanding of Christians in these verses is sinlessness. That we cannot and should not sin as Christians. It's possible for somebody to come to that conclusion. But because of the rest of Scripture, because of 1 John 1, 8 through 2, 2, and because of the word practice in today's passage, you and I can be certain that sinlessness is not what John is talking about. Sinlessness is not what John is talking about. Remember 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, where John wrote, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Does this sound like a man who thought sinlessness was possible? Friends, it is not possible to live a sinless life in this world, though the Gnostics would have told you that it was and that they were. But it is possible because we have been born again in God and are indwelled by Christ to not make a practice of sin. And to instead practice the righteousness that we have been given in him. Apart from being born again, it is not possible. But being born again in God, by his indwelling spirit, it is possible to not make a practice of sin. And instead, to practice the righteousness that we have been given in him. My friends, seven times in today's passage, we find the word practice or some variation thereof. And what John is after by using that word so often or by using phrases like keeps on sinning is to create a distinction between isolated sinful acts and an overarching unrepentant sinful lifestyle. That there is a distinction between isolated sinful acts and an overarching unrepentant sinful lifestyle. Disciples, church, Christians can and do sin. 
But in and through the sanctifying work of God's Spirit, our response to sin will be different. By God's Spirit, in God's time, and in God's way, our desire for and our practice of sin will lessen, while our practices of righteousness and holiness will increase. By God's Spirit, in God's time, and in God's way. So have you been born again? If so, you should be seeing evidences, both big and small, of God's transforming work in your life. As your desires and your priorities and your thoughts, words, and deeds change because it is Jesus who now lives in you. He is the vine, you are the branches. You have no choice but to bear the fruit that he produces in you. Look again at verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Just as it is on earth, some spiritual seeds are small and some grow slowly, but they do grow because God who planted them makes it so. My friends, we'll, we'll never be perfect. More, more than that, we'll, we'll never be finished as long as we live in bodies where the spirit and the flesh are at war, and we do. But as John confirms in verse 28 through, verses 28 through verse 2, either on the day of Christ's return or on the day that God releases us from these bodies in death, we will be complete. We will be free from the presence of sin and the desires of the flesh that afflict us. And we will see him as he is and be as he is in both body and in spirit. We don't quite know what that looks like, but we know it's going to happen. And because we have been born of him, we can be confident in that day. We can be confident in that day. Even as we abide in Christ himself, in his love and in his word, in the here and the now. So like children of the devil, what our dog Grievous most needs is not more training or correction, but a new nature. He needs a new nature. And a new nature and a new identity is exactly what we who have been born of God have been given. Making gospel transformation that leads to newness of life not only possible, but a promise. It is not only possible, my friends, but it is a promise. My friends, in ever-increasing measure, we live in a world that does not know us because it does not know the God in whom we have life. That's verse 1 of chapter 3. And we also live in a world that increasingly reflects verse 19 from chapter 2 of 1 John that we looked at last week, reminding us that there are and there will be those who depart from us because they are not of us. And in their leaving, they prove that they never were of Christ or of we who are his church. 
but for we who abide and remain and stay in Christ, in his love and in his word until the end, for we who do not abandon, run, or stray from the one who first abided in us, we can live confidently in the promise of eternal life that he made to us. Knowing who our loving Father is, trusting that he will lose none who belong to him, and listening to the word of God and his spirit that assures us that we are, we are children of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how great is the love that you have for us, that we are called your children. To recognize that it is through the life, death, and resurrection of your only begotten Son that we have been given such grace and such privilege. In our enmity, you chose to call us friends. In our spiritual death, you chose to give us new birth. Help us to cling to you, to abide in you, and remain in you, even as you have first done so unto us, even as you promised to not lose one who belongs to you. Help us, God, to recognize and to reject erroneous and deceptive teaching and living that would cause us to stray from you. In the righteousness that you have given to us, help us to live as the men, women, boys, and girls you say that we already are through faith. Let us live as children of the king, as children of God, and practice righteousness rather than lawlessness. Give us assurance of our salvation, of our identity in you, and confidence for the day of your return. But until that day comes, God, let us declare in thought, word, and deed the gospel by which we have been saved to those who have not heard or believed it. Let us trust your spirit to do in them what we cannot do, convincing them of what we cannot convince them of and transforming them into the image of Christ just as we trust you to do those things in us. Praise you, our Father God, for the gift of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, and our brother, and for your spirit who abides in us both now and forevermore. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen.